Coming up today, nuclear fusion, treadmill hacking and Norway's electric vehicle headache. You're listening to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me today are Amit Koala. Hello. Matt Burgess. Hello. And Morgan Meeker. Hello. This was the week when workers at developer Activision Blizzard staged a walkout after reports that chief executive Bobby Kotick had been aware of harassment allegations at the firm. The company has been embroiled in scandal since July, when it was sued by the state of California over its frat boy culture. It was also the week when Apple announced it would start making spare parts and repair manuals available for iPhones and Macs. The move, which will start early next year, is being seen as a big win for the right to repair movement. And finally, this was the week when Russia got criticism for an anti-satellite missile test that created thousands of pieces of debris and forced astronauts on the International Space Station to take shelter. Earth is now surrounded by a cloud of bits of old rockets and satellites, and there are fears that it could hamper future launches. So it, it didn't do this out of malice. It's just sort of playing around in space. But does Russia not have a responsibility not to do stuff like this? Well, I think everyone's got a responsibility not to do stuff like this, but in the absence of any international treaties, uh, it's sort of a, a free-for-all up there, as evidenced by Elon Musk sending his car to Jupiter or whatever he did. Um, but I think it, what people are worried about is that it could be used as a sort of scorched-earth policy, right, if you wanted to hamper a satellite launch that could be spying on your country by a rival country, you could just you know, send a load of missiles up, blow up a bunch of satellites, create so much debris that it's impossible to launch anything ever again, which would leave us all trapped on Earth. Lovely. Well, that's a cheerful start to the show. Um, in, in good news, positive news, uh, we have a new member of the team. Welcome, Morgan Mika. Um, Morgan is on Wired's business desk. Morgan, I'm going to put you on the spot straight away and ask you, what did you learn this week? Oh, um, okay. So this week I learned um, in the process of writing my first Wired article, I learned that the pop group AHA, um, who are behind the 80s hit Take On Me, um, which you might not have thought about for a long time, are also big environmentalists who were critical in helping Norway become a world leader in electric car adoption rates. Um, but I think we're going to talk more about that later. I've had Take On Me stuck in my head for most of this week since editing <laughs> that story. So it's a, it's a strong start to your time at Wired, Morgan. Uh, Matt Burgess, what did you learn this week? Yeah, so I've learned something following your call out for facts last week uh, for listeners. So uh, Statos wrote in to provide one and they also said that they, uh, before they got to their facts, they said that they uh, have been listening to the podcast while commuting to work, training for a marathon and running and walking the dog and have very much enjoyed it over the last uh, year or so and longer since they've been listening um, and they say that their fact is uh, they picked this up while reading Walter Isaacson's uh, biography of Leonardo da Vinci uh, at one point he mentions the origins of the words dexterous and sinister which they derive from the old Latin word for right and left respectively uh, and during Leonardo's times they say it was thought very loosely that right-handed people were clever while left-handed people were intending to be misbehaving. Is anyone here left-handed? No. No. So, 
No, no, no one can misbehave. Good stuff. Uh, from facts to fusion, Matt Burgess, over to you. So for our first story this week, we are talking about nuclear fusion and a new experiment that finally found a practical use for it. Yeah, that's right, Matt. So first, a little bit of background about nuclear fusion for people who might not be familiar. So these aren't the nuclear power plants that have been around for decades that that uses nuclear fission, which creates energy by splitting atoms. So those are the ones that we use and know quite well. Nuclear fusion instead tries to take advantage of the energy that's released when atoms bond together inside special reactors called tokamaks. There are a few hundred of these reactors in state-funded research facilities around the world, including the Joint European Taurus in the UK and ITER, the International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor, which you might have heard of in southern France. Now, researchers have been using these to grapple with the challenges of getting nuclear fusion off the ground. It is potentially revolutionary. It could provide essentially unlimited power. Um, Inside the tokamak, powerful magnets hold this whirling massive plasma at high pressure that enables it to reach really, really high temperatures and then allows atoms to fuse together and release energy. But it's one of those things that's been the energy source of the next decade for about 40 years. So cynics argue that nuclear fusion is doomed to forever remain that energy source of the future. And right now, fusion experiments still consume more electricity than they generate. Yeah, and that's one of the big sort of like points and contentions around fusion. It could be something that really changes the sort of amount of energy that we can produce and provide like a new new source of energy for the future. But at the moment, we haven't been able to really use these experiments in a meaningful way. And the reactors that we have got now, um, a story that you've written this week, Amit was talking about something that the fusion reactors can do to be useful at this very moment. Yeah, that's right. So the headline on the story was finally a practical use for nuclear fusion, which was a slightly trite headline, but it is one of the first kind of real world practical uses for this stuff. So it's all to do with plasma. Now, plasma is sort of electric soup, you could characterise it. It accounts for things like lightning or the northern lights. The sun is a kind of giant burning ball of plasma. It's often referred to as the fourth state of matter, but really it's sort of the first. It's in the moments after the Big Bang, plasma was everything. So it's not liquid, gas or solid. It's kind of what happens when atoms break down beyond that. Um, And it also occurs, as well as occurring in the sun and in a nuclear fusion reactor, it also occurs at the high temperatures that are created when spacecraft enter the atmosphere. So friction heats up the air around them and splits the atoms into charged particles. Um, Two researchers I spoke to last week, so Eva Kostadinova and Dmitry Orlov, wondered if they could use one type of plasma, the type generated inside a nuclear fusion reactor, to model the behaviour of the other type, the kind that was created when a spacecraft enters the atmosphere. And we obviously have uh, spacecraft re-entering the atmosphere all the time. Um, Surely this is a problem that we've already solved without having to go to such lengths as using nuclear fusion reactors to to help with this. Yeah, they are incredibly uh, energy hungry and expensive. So this experiment cost half a million dollars a day, I think was what the researchers told me. So it was was not a an immediately apparent choice for this sort of thing. And and you're right, we do know a lot about spacecraft re-entering the atmosphere, but that's on Earth. And even then, you know, spacecraft have to choose their trajectories very, very carefully if they want to avoid being burnt up. So you can't just enter our atmosphere at a 90 degree angle because, you know, you'll, you'll burn up too much and your heat shields won't be able to take it. And that becomes even more of a problem on planets with thicker atmospheres like Jupiter. So um, in 1995, NASA's Galileo mission dropped a probe towards Jupiter that had been really carefully designed and modelled to withstand the heat of going through that thick atmosphere. It had a massive carbon heat shield uh, that comprised 50% of the overall weight of the probe. That's how much friction and heat it had to deal with. 
Now, these heat shells are designed to wear away in a process called ablation. So the heat kind of eats away at the heat shield, leaving the, the scientific instruments inside the probe hopefully untouched. But on this occasion in 1995, when NASA got the data back from the probe, they realised that the heat shield had been dissolved and ablated much, much faster than they predicted. And the only reason that it had survived was because they'd built in, you know, 50% extra redundancy. So the models that they'd used to predict how much heat would be generated and how much plasma would be generated in Jupiter's atmosphere were completely wrong. Um, So they used this data that they got back from the Galileo probe to update their models, but they didn't really have any good way of testing them. It's really, really difficult to precisely recreate the conditions of a high-speed entry to a dense atmosphere on Earth because we don't have those dense atmospheres and we can't really, like, enter... We don't have the atmosphere in the first place and you can't really recreate the speed at which a probe descending to Jupiter will be descending at, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of miles an hour. Um, And that also poses a barrier for new heat shield materials that could be better than the carbon-based ones we're using right now. Right, you can create all the fancy materials you want, but if you can't test them, it's really hard they're going to be it's really hard to be confident that they're going to work when attached to a billion-dollar spacecraft. And that's when, really, I guess, the nuclear fusion reactor comes into this in that overall testing process and sort of helping to uh, potentially create new materials or see if there is stuff that we can do to improve this spacecraft re-entry. Yeah, so in the past, they've used they've tried to recreate this amount of heat using lasers or plasma jets or high-speed projectiles to kind of simulate that heat of entry, but none of them have really been quite right. Um, so... The researchers that I spoke to used the D3D reactor at a Department of Energy facility in the United States in San Diego to run a series of experiments on ablation. So they got one of these Tokamak nuclear fusion reactors and using a special port at the bottom, they inserted a series of carbon rods into the plasma and then used high-speed and infrared cameras and spectrometers to track how they disintegrated. They also fired little carbon pellets into the reactor at high speed, kind of creating on a small scale what the heat shield and the Galileo probe would have encountered as it entered Jupiter's atmosphere. And what they found was that the conditions inside the nuclear reactor were remarkably similar to those of a spacecraft entering Jupiter in terms of the plasma, the temperature, the speed it flowed over the material, and even its composition. So it's mostly hydrogen and helium in the Jupiter atmosphere, and the D3D tokamak uses deuterium, which is kind of an isotope of hydrogen. So similar form of plasma, similar ions and similar atoms breaking down. So... I guess rather than kind of launching a thing at tens of thousands of miles an hour to to enter a thick atmosphere, they held the object in place as the plasma kind of whirled around it at that speed to sort of recreate this environment on Earth. Yeah, it's very much sort of like reversing the process, really, to make sure that this sort of testing can can even happen. Um, But I guess really one of the sort of biggest questions was, did this sort of process work? Is it something they're going to keep doing? And is it really worth it, I guess? Yeah, so it, it works. And what they found out was that the models that had been based on the data sent back from the Galileo probe are broadly accurate. So that gives them some confidence that the the models they have will be useful for future missions. But it's also opening up a new testing technique in an area that hasn't really seen much innovation since NASA's heyday in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, now, obviously, nuclear fusion reactors are very expensive to use. And this experiment was part of kind of a special program, a, a week of time given over to kind of non-energy related research um so it's hard to see whether this will become a de facto way of testing these materials but with further experiments all of and castellanova hope that the models can be improved even more and used to optimize heat shield design for future missions and what that means is that they can put more material where it's needed but then also remove the material from where it's not needed so you know if you can make your heat shield thinner and lighter you can fit more scientific instruments into it uh, for the same amount of weight 
and you don't have to worry so much about the heat shield getting worn away. Similarly, you can take different trajectories. So you might you might take a steeper trajectory into entering the atmosphere that you wouldn't have been able to before because of the, the amount of friction. So one of the missions that could take advantage is NASA's Da Vinci Plus mission, which is scheduled to launch towards Venus near the end of the decade. That's going to be similar to the Galileo mission in that there'll be an orbiting probe and then a probe that descends through the thick atmosphere on Venus to take measurements from there. And so that will need really, really strong heat shielding as it descends. The other thing the researchers said was that this type of experiment could also help design fusion reactors themselves. So a lot of the research on tokamaks and nuclear fusion is focused on the sort of central core, right? The plasma and what it's doing and how to control it. But if this technology is going to become part of our world, we're going to need better materials for the surrounding areas. You know, how do you shield it in case something goes wrong? How do you test those materials? How do you contain everything? So they hope that the space industry and the nuclear fusion industry can kind of work more closely together to develop the materials that they both need. You can read the full story on wired.co.uk. We'll include a link in the show notes. And if you want to get in touch with the show, as always, it's podcast at wired.co.uk. Now, for our second story this week, we're talking about electric cars. And as Morgan hinted earlier, this has something to do with AHA. So, Morgan, Norway has done better than most countries at getting gas-guzzling cars off the roads and replacing them with EVs. But it turns out that it's having an unwanted side effect. Yes, exactly. So there's actually this kind of huge and interesting contradiction at the centre of Norwegian society, which is that one of the world's biggest oil producers, um, so Norway pumps more oil per person than Saudi Arabia or Russia, is actually at the same time in a total league of its own when it comes to electric car adoption. Um, So in September, uh, official figures showed that almost 80% of all new cars sold in Norway were fully electric, so that's excluding hybrid cars. Um, So you get a sense of how impressive that number is if you compare it to the UK, where 15% of new car sales were electric as of October. Um, The US is even worse on that scale. So the proportion of new electric cars sold there um, was just 2.6%. So the reason behind Norway's success is basically credited to kind of a suite of generous tax breaks and kind of financial carrots that the government dangles for its citizens. Um, They've had them in place the last decade, and it means that brands like Tesla can compete on price with um, kind of combustible engines that um, other, that people might be wanting to buy. Um, however, the success of these incentives is creating an issue that no other country has had to deal with yet, and that is that Norway is running out of dirty cars to tax. And this is a pretty big problem and kind of a weird problem right so we can all agree electric cars equal good getting as we put it dirty cars off the road um is is a good thing too but it's estimated that the tax breaks and other incentives for ev owners are creating a 2.3 ish billion dollar hole in norway's annual revenue so evs are good for the environment but what we're seeing in norway is something that will happen as all countries try and encourage EV adoption. If they follow the Norwegian model, they might need to rethink or at least tweak the economics. But let, let's rewind a bit here. How did Norway get so, so far ahead when it comes to EV adoption? So this whole story starts with a guy called Frederick Hauger. And as I mentioned earlier, he sort of joined forces with the pop group AHA. So Frederick and the members of AHA, they're sort of united by their belief that 
the state should be more proactive in encouraging individuals to embrace electric vehicles. Maybe they're not going to do this entirely of their own accord. So basically, they believe they could help persuade the government um, to embrace this idea. So they decided that they needed to get hold of an electric car themselves, um, which Frederick, when I spoke to him, told me was not actually very easy back in the 80s. They had to go all the way to Switzerland, um, where they found a red Fiat Panda, which had been converted into to run off a lead battery by its previous owner. So it was kind of a, an amateur attempt to convert it into an ele- electric car. Um, but because this was quite an early example of an EV, this car only had a range of about 50 kilometres or 30 miles. Um, so that's not very far if you think that EVs at the moment sort of boast ranges of above 300 miles. Um, but it was this Fiat Panda that then became the centrepiece of this long nine-year campaign in which Hauger and the members of AHA took turns in driving the car through Norway's toll roads without paying And their point was that electric cars deserve special status on the roads. And if EV drivers didn't have to pay for the tolls, maybe more people would start using this new form of transport. Um, But this is still the late 80s, so Norway wasn't convinced. And every time the group did this, driving through the tolls without paying, they got fined. Um, These fines racked up and when they stayed unpaid, the vehicle was confiscated, impounded and the government would try to sell it at auction to get some of their money back. Um, however, like nobody really wanted an electric car, so at the auction, the only person who was bidding for this car, which remember could only drive 30 miles at a time, was Frederick Hauger. So he would buy it back again and just start restart this whole process of of toll jumping from the beginning. Um, and so this became a big debacle in Norway. The press got very interested and excited. There was a lot of publicity, which was obviously helped by the fact that uh, this giant pop band was involved. Um, someone described Hauger to me as a kind of positive vigilante who sort of put electric cars on Norway's radar and sort of made the government sit up and pay attention. Um, so, as I said, the campaign did take a long time, about nine years, but it did eventually work. And the government started to in- introduce this whole suite of incentives for EV drivers um, from the late 90s. So almost a whole decade after Hauger and Aha bought this Fiat Panda. And this is years and years ahead of pretty much any other country in the world. And the incentives are pretty wide ranging, right? So EVs were exempted from the toll charges, as you were hinting at there, but also parking fees. And they were allowed to skip traffic by using bus lanes. And more meaningfully, to get people to buy the EVs in the first place, purchases of new EVs were exempted from hefty taxes, including VAT and purchase tax, which meant that, to give one example from your story, right, a Volkswagen e-Golf cost almost $900 less than a Volkswagen Golf with a combustion engine. Now, if anyone's looked at buying an electric car outside of Norway, you'll find that they tend to be more expensive. But in some ways, in Norway, this policy has almost worked too well. Well, that's what's kind of up for debate in Norway at the moment. So for some, they do believe that this shift to electric cars has eradicated an important source of income for Norway's government or for any government that taxes uh, car sales. Um, so Annette Berva from the Norwegian Automobile Federation, um, she told me that it's kind of become this clash of two different goals. So obviously government wants to raise money through taxes, but they also want to transition to a greener society uh, where people are driving electric cars. 
Um, so in an attempt to claw back some of this lost income, officials are starting to strip electric cars of this special status that they've had since Hauger launched his campaign. Um, so this is sparking quite a fierce debate in Norway because some people are concerned that the country could jeopardise its own very ambitious goal of selling no new cars with combustion engines um, by 2025. Um, so one of the first incentives to go was this toll charge back in 2017. But now Norway's centre-left coalition government is considering removing a much broader list of incentives as part of their ongoing budget negotiations, which are taking place this month. Um, so there's a lot of uncertainty about which taxes will be introduced. The government isn't being entirely clear about what's going to be reintroduced and when. But basically what people expect to make a comeback, either in this budget or in future budgets under this government, is a tax for plug-in hybrids, a tax for second-hand EV sales, a tax for luxury EVs, so that's EVs costing more than 600,000 Norwegian krona, which is basically $70,000, um, and the resurrection of an annual ownership tax for EV owners. Um, the government told me that the tax for hybrids is included in the current budget proposals, but the luxury EV tax isn't going to be in this year's budget, but they didn't rule out it being in a following a following budget or an uh, upcoming policy. Um, so what's interesting is that in any other country, it'd be really unlikely to see left-wing government supporting these kind of policies. Um, but there is a sense in Norway, um, there's this consensus that across the political spectrum, it's time to tax EVs because they're not a novelty anymore. But in some ways, they, they are still a novelty, even given Norway's huge success. They still make up in, in terms of total cars on the road, if we consider like all of all of the vehicles in Norway are part of a fleet. They're a very small number of that fleet. But even given that, from the people that you spoke to, even environmentalists aren't against, aren't against this idea of introducing taxes against electric vehicles, even though the incentives that have been in place in Norway have been so, so popular. But what the environmentalists you spoke to argue is so long as the taxes are fair and taxes against combustion vehicles are much, much higher then there's no reason that people shouldn't be taxed for buying an electric vehicle. Yeah, so environmentalists are especially supportive of the idea that hybrids need to be taxed because uh, most people I spoke to agreed that hybrids kind of are eating into the market for fully electric vehicles. And if you tax them, people might make the shift further um, into the electric market. Um, but there's concern about the timing, whether these, this time comes too soon to take back the incentives. As you said, um, only 15% of the Norway's whole car population is electric. So there is some, some way to go. Um, so it's interesting talking to Frederick Hauger, who's considered the architect of many of these incentives. And he's worried that rolling them back too quickly could cause major setbacks. Um, so he's worried that taxing luxury or so-called luxury um, electric vehicles um, is going to disincentivize people who live in kind of remote parts of Norway, who spend more money on their cars because they, they drive longer distances. It's going to disincentivize them from adopting electric cars. Um, and then the Norwegian Car Federation's Annette, she said she was also worried about um, attacks on used electric cars undermining the market before it's had a chance to develop because obviously a huge percent of Norway's car fleet are not going to be new cars they're going to be second-hand cars um, so yeah basically there is a sense that eventually electric cars need to be taxed again but basically the debate is what is the timeline for doing that and 
even though these policies have been in place for some time to incentivize EV adoption, as we both sort of hinted at, it's still low. It's high relatively, but low in, in total. 15% of Norway's fleet, if you like, of vehicles is currently electric. And that, that's pretty good, but there's a very long way to go. And the concern that you're raising here is that removing incentives will slow down this really remarkable progress that Norway has made to date. And that's to say that people who have managed to get an EV early, if you like, get the advantage and everyone else is left to pick up the bill. But although I, I imagine ultimately we all pick up the bill because we don't fight off climate change sufficiently and countries start disappearing under rising sea levels. But this hints at another issue here, that EVs are great, but they're not the perfect solution. And what governments might ultimately look to do if they're going to tax EVs to an extent, tax hybrids to a higher extent, and tax combustion engines to a higher, higher extent, is look to disincentivize car ownership altogether. Yeah, exactly. And you're seeing that across Europe. I mean, lots of cities are starting to pedestrianise city centres, sort of discourage um, people from driving cars altogether in certain parts of the country. And in Norway... Um, while some people believe the step after the roads are filled with electric vehicles is kind of getting rid of dirty commercial vehicles, so we're talking like vans, trucks, even ships. Others are campaigning for a future, or they're sort of suggesting or looking to a future where the emphasis shifts away from cars altogether and focuses on public transport, which which people such as I spoke to um, Halvard Ravand of Greenpeace Norway, he stressed that would that's that's a preferable future because although EVs don't release emissions as they drive around, they do still have an environmental impact. He was talking about how they justify the development of bigger roads and obviously they still demand energy during production and then depending on where they are charged when they're plugged in. Um, so I think it's interesting. It's true that a country that exports such huge amounts of oil um, seems a very unlikely place for this kind of post-car era to unfold. Um, but that might just be exactly what's happening. We had a story on the podcast a few weeks ago um, talking about the environmental impact of thinking differently about your diet and you know cutting out certain kinds of food at the expense of others and the sort of the unexpected knock-on effects that that might have. And I think as we have more and more open and nuanced discussions about how we deal with climate change, stories like this are really important. We need to take the examples of countries that have gotten out ahead and learn from them, right? So Norway's facing the situation where it needs to fill a hole in its public finances. How can it do that without disincentivizing EV take-up when it's made such good progress so far? I know we've got a pretty international listenership. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Do you think it's wrong for Norway to get rid of these really, really positive incentives for EV adoption? Is there a better way of doing this? How do we go about incentivizing the right kind of behavior to make sure that people make the right decisions for everyone? Get in touch. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Our third story this week is about treadmills and exercise equipment. Matt Burge is a favourite topic of yours, but why are we talking about it this week? Yeah, so this story is really about fitness equipment from a company called Nordic Track, which is owned by a parent company called iFit. And it's about the restrictions that have been put in place on Nordic 
tracks machines and i'm going to go into a fair bit of context here to uh, sort of lay out the scene um so nordic track makes fitness equipment it does treadmills exercise bikes rowing machines ellipticals and and all of the sort of like things that you would see in a gym and what makes them stand out really is a lot of them have very big very nice screens on them if you're familiar with sort of peloton's equipment it's sort of the same sort of deal really um and Pe- nordic tracks parent company ifit also makes a bunch of interactive exercise videos and let's people subscribe to them so you could if you're running on a treadmill uh, you could be following somebody a video of somebody on the big screen uh, who is running around the lake district and then as you in the uk and then as if you when you do the treadmill's incline will change with the ground that they're running on if they're going up a hill then the treadmill will sort of change to be more uphill and where this story starts really or at least us being aware of it is thanks to a podcast listener who emailed in a few weeks ago they didn't want us to actually use their real name but they emailed in saying uh, that nordic track has pushed an update to their treadmills that meant that they weren't working in the same way as before and they said that nordic track has basically blocked ways for people to be able to watch tv such as netflix or movies or anything that isn't the official i fit software um from them from them being used and uh, in particular this uh, listener wrote in to say that they were annoyed that they couldn't watch premier league highlights anymore on their treadmill so this seems quite odd because normally this is the kind of thing that you might think is quite a nice added feature for people with treadmills to be able to access all this stuff so what was the problem here So on these treadmills, you're not officially uh, allowed or supposed to watch things that aren't on the official apps that are installed on them. And this is actually the same for uh, Peloton equipment as well as Nordic track equipment. Um, But there has been a way of doing so. So on the Nordic track equipment, if you tap the screen 10 times and then wait for seven seconds and then do another 10 taps, you get to enter a privileged mode, which is sort of like a, a god mode accessing the underlying Android operating system and allowing you to access browser and the the functionality of uh, the android operating system and install and sideload apps onto it so people have been using this to watch tv uh, one person brought their treadmill with a 32 inch screen because they knew about this mode and wanted to watch educational videos to do with training courses that they were taking uh, and the person that wrote in about this was uh, sort of had realized that this could be done and then they started to watch the premier league highlights and other stuff while they're exercising as well and then at the start of october nordic tracks started started automatically installing updates on people's machines uh, that means it's impossible to enter privilege mode in the same way so whereas in before you could tap and get access to it now if you do those taps you have to ring up customer service uh, and give them a reason why you want access to this privilege mode and then get a pin code to unlock it i think this is a really interesting topic because it kind of gets into this idea of who actually owns the devices that you purchase right and for thousands of years the things we've bought have belonged to us but the rise of digital technologies have kind of put us in this world where actually you can buy a, a phone or a tablet or a treadmill and actually a, a cloud update can be served to it against your will that completely removes some functionality does nordic track have the right to install updates on this equipment is this similar to getting phone updates Yeah, this is where things sort of get really messy and a bit complicated. Um, And we sort of get into the subject a bit, as you say, on sort of like the idea of the right to repair. So uh, the 
the news update that I did at the top of the show is about Apple uh, for the first time being allowed to uh, allowing customers to repair their own phones and also sort of issuing the instructions and everything to do so. And broadly, the idea of the right to repair covers everything from the rather obvious ability of people to repair their devices, but also to access spare parts, see manuals, how to fix things, and also just generally tinker with the things that they've purchased. Um, So typically, a lot of manufacturers have pushed back against people's ability to do these things saying that it will break their security and lots of other reasons that could potentially damage a product or essentially uh, allow people to to tinker and look at the code that they may not be supposed to be looking at. Um, and when software is involved, things do get a little bit more complicated. So while you might buy a physical product, you don't technically own the software that's on it. So copyright or intellectual property laws and terms of service that say uh, what you can and can't do sort of govern uh, officially what you should do with uh, with the uh, operating systems and things that on these types of devices. And really, I guess why we also saw Apple making this announcement uh, earlier this week was that right to repair laws are coming. So in the US, uh, the movement has sort of already uh, started to take a few steps ahead. Joe Biden and the FTC have said that they want to in uh, introduce laws around this area and in Europe next year uh, there will be draft laws from the European Parliament uh, about the people's right to repair and what they can do to access their devices and the advocates I was uh, speaking to around this story say that people should really be able to tinker with their software as well uh, when they can uh, technically do so and have the competence to do so and they should be protected from facing any penalties but what I think has really annoyed people with this instance with Nordic Track is particularly that they didn't have a choice so the people that I spoke to that own these machines say that normally when there's a software update, they get a choice. They can say, yes, I want to install this. No, I don't want to install it. They might be showing the benefits or explain the benefits of why a certain update um, is worth installing, such as fixing security features or adding additional functionality or things like that. But in this case, the block block on privilege mode really seemed to be forced upon them automatically. And some people that I spoke to said they felt that this update was actually pushed out overnight at 2am their local time and they couldn't, uh, they did, they just couldn't do anything about it at all. It seems like a weird thing for Nordic Track to do. Like, I don't understand why they would make their products actively worse without their users knowing like surely if you know although i get that it's not like an approved use of the treadmill or whatever but like why would they want to stop their customers from using this if it's driving sales as it was in one case yeah so i obviously put this to nordic track and the company behind it and they came up with a few different reasons and they said that privilege mode was never actually designed as a consumer facing functionality and it was always existed to be there uh, so their customer care team uh, could basically access products remotely to troubleshoot, update, reset or repair their software. And they say that because their software controls a moving piece of fitness equipment, they believe that for safety reasons and for the security of their customers uh, and their families and people using these types of machines, that actually restricting access to the operating system means there is uh, less of a chance of something going wrong. Um, And I, I think if you have that in a context of a uh, treadmill or something in a gym or a fitness center where uh, anybody could use it and then sort of unlock this mode and then somebody else could come onto it afterwards. There could be something there to say that actually this could cause a situation where somebody isn't familiar with the mode that it's in. Um, And the company just went on to say essentially that safety concerns are one of the biggest things around why they decided to um, actually 
force this update on people and they said that there's no way of knowing what changes or errors a consumer could introduce into the software um, and there's no way of them knowing what specific issues accessing privilege mode might cause. I think one of the things that around this is important to maybe flag as well is, is this probably isn't being used by a huge amount of Nordic Track customers. It's impossible for us to be able to tell but as one of these features that's sort of like hidden away um, it's something that is yeah not actively marketed by the company but if you go online and typed in, uh, can I ask, can I watch Netflix on a Nordic track? Um, there, there are guides and ideas around how to get into this as there are for the Peloton systems as well. So that's one thing we don't know is how many people were using this, but the company, as I say, their main concerns are around safety and sort of usability of the devices. It makes you think about how many devices out there that are equally dangerous if, you know, hacked or you know, run amok that also run on Android, right? And like how many other companies have got devices that just use like a kind of restricted version of Android that could be open to the same, you know, problems if customers install rogue software. I mean, what, where does this leave Nordic Track customers? You know, your your guy who spent thousands of dollars on a treadmill, is he going to have to prop his phone up on a table like the rest of us? Or what can he do now? Yeah, so where this also gets super interesting is a lot of the people that have been using uh, privilege mode that I've spoken to have actually been trying to find ways around this block. So um, there are multiple guides and sort of YouTube channels out there that are talking about this mode and sort of how um, the uh, how the company has forced the block in place. And people that have been using it are very annoyed because they paid thousands of dollars for these types of machines uh, and trying to exercise on them. And many of them sort of uh, say that they also bought them knowing that they could access this privilege mode to be able to watch stuff so from their opinion a function that they had an ability that they had to actually do something which is pretty uh straightforward really in terms of like watching tv it's, it's nothing that's super controversial um then that functionality is now gone for them which they they obviously could have before so um there are multiple people that have been blocking their uh use of the uh the server's ability to update um, the uh, push the updates across uh, through like changing settings on their routers and things like that and also reconfiguring uh, their devices and systems to be able to stop these updates installing and going back to factory reset modes um, so that there are sort of a movement pushing back against this really and I think that when we see those types of right to repair laws coming into place this is going to be one of the bigger issues that comes out of this as well people's ability to actually say no to an update and have the uh, have the right to actually just have the functions that they want on the devices that they purchase and and are using on a very regular basis the struggle goes on and it's an interesting test case in a way right because um maybe accessing privilege mode on a phone or a tablet what are you really going to be able to do to it but to nordic tracks point about you know these things have got moving parts and if they're installed in a gym or a fitness club you don't really want people messing around with the underlying software in a way that could make a treadmill do something really weird when the next person steps on it i just wanted to this might be a bit of a dumb question but isn't what's the the, the real problem here i mean yes right to repair is important but a lot of the problems that we're talking about here people want to watch netflix and youtube on a treadmill could be solved by companies not putting crappy proprietary software on their products and just running something that lets people watch netflix and youtube on a treadmill right that's a function of the change in business model that we've seen across a load of industries right where they don't want to just sell you the hardware they want to lock you into a subscription for life 
Peloton's a classic example, even Apple Health and Apple Music and Apple TV, like they, they don't, they realize that people weren't upgrading their hardware often enough to deliver the profits that they need. So they want to lock you into this expensive subscription. And this is a result of that. Yeah, that is very much part of the play here because some of that uh, iFit subscription service is actually stuff that people will uh, potentially be able to have a, a year-long membership for and things like that. So um, I think that one of the, the one of the easy or obvious things that would be possible is just to create a slightly separate mode or, or allow the functionality to watch other apps and services on there. So all of the people that I spoke to actually said their treadmills and their equipment is really good and they actually think this Nordic Track stuff is, is really impressive. Um, but they said being able to watch something that we wanted to watch as well as subscribing in some cases um actually meant they use their equipment more so there is that sort of usability and function to it as well the, the cynic in me wants to argue that in six months or a year's time we'll see you know add netflix to your ifit subscription for only two pounds a month right they'll bring this in legally but make it part of the subscription so you're kind of locked in even further Probably, yeah. And, and something that's maybe similar to this and a little further down the road, that wasn't a deliberate pun, is cars, right? So think back, I don't know, five, ten years um, when smart, I'm doing air quotes, systems were added to cars for the first time. All the big players wanted to develop their own system, their own OS for introducing these smart features. But all people really wanted was Google Maps, and Spotify or whatever in their car on a touchscreen that was running a version of Android or iOS. And ultimately, that's where we've ended up, right? All of the car companies have conceded that actually they're no good at doing what Google and Apple are really, really good at. So they kind of bowed down and said, all right, you guys take this over. And it doesn't mean that you can't layer your own things into that. So maybe where this ultimately ends up, right, is with Nordic Track either adding new features to its own operating system or conceding defeat to a larger company, um, which is maybe slightly depressing in terms of competition law. Um, and they come in and say, okay, well, here's a way of keeping fit and keeping entertained and watching your Premier League highlights. And we move away from, we move even further away from this kind of fragmented, slightly broken way of trying to force people to subscribe to a million different services. It's not necessarily great for competition, but Arguably, it makes for a better product. I was not paid by Apple or Google to say that very, very boring point. Podcast at wired.co.uk if you want to disagree with capitalist James Temperton. Uh, time for a couple of your emails. Matt Burgess. Yeah, so the first one we got in was from Jennifer writing in about age verification. And we talked a few weeks ago about um, sort of the face scanning uh, age estimation system. And Jennifer writes in to say that uh, had a, they had a thought about how you verify people's ages on the internet. And they said, what about a third party organization where you essentially verify your age? That is not the website that is wanting you to verify your age, but is like a third party credit checking organization. Um, and they say that this sort of method could work by the third party company verifying your age independently and then giving you a code that you can then type into a website which gets checked against a database without your actual um, name or any personal details being transferred to the company that wants to check it and essentially actually this is uh, this is a lot of the model that a lot of um, age verification companies have uh, started to go down so this is um, something that is being looked at in actually this this idea and this way of doing this so uh, Jennifer yeah I think this is something that we are going to 
privacy on a lot more sites and it, it very recently sort of we've seen uh, google and youtube and things like that asking people to verify their age and their their date of birth and all of that sort of thing uh, but doing it through their own systems and yeah the third party companies that have appeared in this space in the last five or ten years are trying to do it in a in a way that is slightly more separate from handing over data to a company that is asking for it I hate to bring the porn block porn block back up, but correct me if I'm wrong, Matt Burgess. There was when the UK government was proposing that there was going to be age verification on all pornographic websites. One of the things that was floated was this idea of a porn pass, right, where you'd be able to go into a local newsagent's corner shop, whatever, and ask for a physical piece of cardboard or paper from behind the till pay money for it right and that would be your access to pornography on the internet and that was a like a a very stupid idea but it was a way of divorcing people's identity from their wish to watch pornography so long as you're not the shopkeeper um, because it's a bit like when you're a teenager and you go into the local pharmacy to buy condoms for the first time yeah it's like ill ill thought through but it was trying to solve that issue of people not putting their details into a centralized system that says i would like to watch porn please yeah you are right that is very much what happened and i think that like the movement around sort of age verification on websites is one that is sort of very strong at the moment across sort of like legislation in um in europe is is coming up towards the end of this year and uh, also some us states and the uk are looking at these types of ideas again but much broader than uh, what we saw previously with pornography and a lot of it now is about uh, protecting children online and essentially rolling out these methods in different ways and as i say that industry that has sprung up to do this uh, which is very much has its own self-interests uh, is trying to do this in a way that um, maybe the company that you're trying to give your id to doesn't get that information and, and be a bit separated there are plenty of other issues across the board with the industry that sprung up and things like that but yeah it's something that is definitely the the trend is moving towards more verification and less uh, potential an- anonymity online in some cases uh, a wild change of direction for the last 30 seconds of the show. Mike writes in about Salt Bay's golden burgers. He writes that the craze for wrapping burgers in metal precedes Salt Bay by decades. My mother used to wrap my burgers in aluminium foil in the 1970s. Okay, the foil was not edible, but the burger tasted way better than a gilded version whose price would have given me instant indigestion. So th- th- this caused a little bit of confusion, Mike. Perhaps you could uh, you could correct the record. Were the burgers cooked in the foil... Or did you just mean they were wrapped in foil after they were cooked? And and finally, you didn't eat the foil, did you? Please let us know. Podcast at wired.co.uk. We will clear up the foil-wrapped burger mystery next week, hopefully. Podcast at wired.co.uk if you want to write in about wrapping things in foil or anything else. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for this week. We'll be back again same time next week. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. Goodbye.